Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. Gather, welcome to church. Thanks for being with us today. My name is Josh, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, Before we get started with our teaching today, we're going to participate in our confession of faith. Uh, We do this every week as an open declaration of the kind of people and and the kind of faith that we want to have. And so uh, I'll say this confession of faith on our behalf and then speak a prayer for us. So gather, this is the faith we are seeking. We are seeking an expansive faith. We believe our theological system should always be growing wider and including more. We are seeking a faith rooted in the person and the practice of Jesus. We believe Jesus is God and is worthy of our worship and our imitation. We are seeking a faith built on a foundation of theological minimalism. We believe in holding tight to the first things of faith and living open-handed with the rest. We are seeking a faith marked by curiosity. We believe we should always have more questions than we do answers. And we are seeking a faith filled with compassion. We believe our beliefs are never more important than the person right in front of us. And so gather as we prepare to open the scriptures, let's say a prayer together. God, we are here today as seekers. Not seeking answers, but seeking wisdom. Not seeking doctrine, but seeking a way of life inspired by the radical love of Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, there's a lot of interesting... uh, and sad conflict and division happening in our world. Uh, People choose left or right, then they camp out, they build a tribe, and they demonize the other side. And in my little world that I'm in over the last few years, I've seen so much shade thrown from Christians about one tribe to another, right? So one tribe finds its little camp and then critiques the other side. Not all of it is untrue or unhelpful, but uh, within all this infighting between Christians over the last few years, there's been this clear divide that has happened between people who consider themselves uh, traditionalists or conservatives and people who are progressive Christians. In fact, in some places, the term uh, progressive Christianity is used as an insult, as a four-letter word. Uh, someone might uh, present an idea and, and someone would say, well, that, that sounds like progressive Christianity. And everyone goes, oh! No. Okay. Well, let's not believe that. So it's an interesting kind of world that I find in my little circle uh, that I'm in. I know that's not really your circle, but it's at least in my uh, little world. But because uh, uh, many of my uh, peers, my friends, my pastor friends, especially my peers and pastor friends that went with me to Houston Baptist University, they definitely consider uh, me a progressive Christian. And a lot of people in our community and outside of our community would consider our church a progressive Christian church. And so I thought today I might start uh, by critiquing progressive Christianity a little bit. And now let me just say, uh, this is, uh, this is our camp. This is our, our, our side. Okay. I'm, I'm critiquing my own set of beliefs here, uh, not trying to tear down anybody else. Um, What, what this progressive thinking gets right is that everyone is accepted and loved and and included by God and God's people. Yes, 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 no doubt in my mind. 
And many of us uh, who consider ourselves to be kind of progressive thinking Christians are reacting and pushing against a kind of rigid fundamentalism uh, that told us that we needed to have a a prescribed set of behaviors to stay in good standing with God and God's church. So we're, we're pushing against that fundamentalism and, and saying there, there is nothing you can do or not do that moves you closer or further from a creator who loves you. And I believe that's true. But there's the other side to this coin that I think we, that I think I, in as a, a pastor leader here, that I sometimes miss, that we, we get stuck uh, at acceptance and we never actually change or grow, or transform. All of us have work to do. All of us have work to do. And this is the real tension of Christian theology, that you do not, you do not, I do not have to change in order to be loved and accepted. But that doesn't mean that I or you are living our best, most meaningful, most fulfilling, most beautiful life. And though you are already enough, you are, so if, you, if nothing else, just hear, you are already enough to be loved and accepted by God and God's people. You are. And you are capable of change. You are already enough to be loved and accepted by God and God's people. And you are capable of change. So there's this real tension. And I, I don't want us to get stuck because of my own uh, kind of blind spots. And so today we're going to have a conversation about changing. And and we're in uh, the fifth week in our conversation on the book of Acts. And we've been telling you, reminding you, that the book of Acts is the story of the living, breathing church. The church coming alive. The church as dynamic. And over and over again in the book of Acts, the, the church is reviewing itself and editing. It's changing over and over again. And the shift we see in Acts chapter 9 is that anyone can change. Anyone can change. In Acts chapter 9, we get the story of Saul's conversion. And this is Saul who would later change his name to Paul and then write the majority of the New Testament. So let's read this story together. It's kind of long again. We read long passages from Acts, but just stick with me. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9, it says, Meanwhile, Saul, who will later become the Apostle Paul, but this, this is Saul right now, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any, if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is a follower of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And then verse 15, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. 
and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Because this is a major transformation here. Saul, verse 1. He's breathing out murderous threats against uh, the Lord's disciples, against Christians. And, and we know from earlier accounts in the book of Acts that Saul was present at the stoning, at the killing, at the martyrdom of Christians. And it says here that he's looking to round up those who are following Jesus and take them to Jerusalem for trial. He's looking to arrest Christians. And then all of a sudden, a light from heaven flashes. He has a divine encounter with Jesus. He's blinded by Jesus. And then we have this man, Ananias. God asks Ananias to go to Saul and help him see again. And Ananias does it even though he knows Saul is dangerous. Saul is looking to arrest people just like Ananias. And then Saul sees again. He's baptized and he begins to preach about Jesus. So beginning of the story, verse one, what's, what's coming out of Saul's mouth? It's murderous threats. And then verse 20 Paul is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Anybody can change. Everyone is capable of change. But there's one thing in particular I want to point out today. Saul didn't change alone. Almost no one can change alone. And at first glance, you may think that this divine encounter was the, was the engine for Saul's change. It definitely did something. But when Saul left Jesus, he was blind and not eating. The transformation completes itself when Ananias shows up. And Ananias places his hands on Saul. He must have been afraid. This man who was uh, participating in the killing of Christians, Ananias places his hands on Saul and he says, Saul, brother. And as he says these things to Saul, Saul begins to see again. And then before Saul starts preaching, at the very end, he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 19, it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples. Anyone can change. Anyone can change. The people around, doing arrests, putting people on trial for the way they believe. Anyone can change, but no one changes alone. Anyone can change, but no one changes alone. And we often fall into this trap where we think that shame will be a good tool for change. So we shame ourselves thinking that will help us change. We shame ourselves with negative self-talk. We tell ourselves a story about who we are. Shame always leads us down the same spiral though. It doesn't get us where we're going. Shame always leads us down this exact same spiral. Shame isolates us. So we tell ourselves a story about who we are. Negative self-talk, shame then isolates us. And that isolation leads to extreme thinking. And that extreme thinking, it can include uh, a really extreme ideology. We've seen that play out in terrible, violent ways. That, that, that uh, extreme thinking can include extreme ideology. But do you know what else is an extreme thought? Uh, no one cares about me is an extreme thought. That's extreme thinking. Uh, I, I can do all of this on my own. That's extreme thinking. And so shame isolates us. And then because of that isolation, we, we go down this road of, of extreme thinking. And then that extreme thinking almost always leads to unhealthy decisions. 
And then if we're in that spiral of shame leading us to isolation that leads us uh, to extreme thinking, that leads us to poor decision-making, after we make those unhealthy decisions, we almost always feel ashamed. And that shame, we feel ashamed and we tell ourselves, I, I can't believe you did it again. You're so bad. You're bad at this. What are you doing? It's negative self-talk. We're ashamed and then we isolate. Then we have extreme thinking. Then we make unhealthy decisions. And because of those, we feel ashamed and it just goes on and on and on and on. And so instead of thinking that shame can change us, change us, we need to believe that safety can change us. We change in the context of safe community. Anyone can change, but no one changes alone. So instead of shaming ourselves, we need to plant ourselves in safe community. Safe community reminds us who we are. Right? Not this negative self-talk, not the things that we would never say out loud to someone else. Safe community reminds us who we really are. Safe community curbs our extreme thinking. And it offers us grace instead of shame when we make unhealthy decisions. Right? Shame won't get us where we want to go. But safe community will. It worked for Saul. Saul couldn't change alone. He needed a safe community. And so do you. So I've been kind of evaluating this week uh, what kind of changes have happened in my life and in the life of our church uh, over the last few years. And uh, undoubtedly, our community's thinking and position on things like white supremacy, racism, diversity, inclusion, and equity, those things have shifted in the last couple of years. Uh, I get comments sometimes from people in our community or on the fringes of our community, things like, um, the, the church talks a lot about inclusion and white supremacy and racism now. And uh, by the way, not everyone who says that, who makes that comment, means it as a compliment. Uh, but I take it as a compliment every time. Uh, and there are, of course, a lot of reasons that we started talking about these things differently. It was hard to ignore the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, so many more. Uh, as a community, we have read and we have prayed and we have thought. But for our church, the safe and really divine presence of Andre Franklin has shifted our community. I just want to honor Andre for a moment uh, because you haven't seen most of it. You haven't seen the ways he's worked. But we have sat in meetings together and he said, uh, things like, we've got to address this. You need to say something out loud about this. Or he said, uh, we can't sing that song anymore. That song is just white supremacy out loud. We can't sing that song anymore. Or he said, hey, we need black women on our board. Black women need to be in the room where decisions are made. And Andre is gifted in a myriad of ways, you know that. But over all of those gifts, Andre is safe. And because Andre is safe, he brings with him transformation. Anybody can change, but no one, no one changes alone. We all need safe community to pull us up out of our shame spiral. So for you, what needs to change in your life? Right? Everyone has stuff to work on. What needs to change? And I just wonder if you're willing to be honest you're just willing to be honest, at least with yourself. What, what needs to change in your life? 
And then for those things that need to change, do you isolate in shame or do you seek safe community? What's your, uh, what's your default move? What's your movement? Do you move towards shame and isolation or towards safe community? Uh, in regards to those things that need to change. So when you make a poor decision, we all make poor decisions. Unhealthy decision-making, it happens. When those things happen, do you isolate in shame or do you seek safe community? And then do you have safe community? We usually say around here that if you are pretending or defending, then you don't feel safe. And I just wonder uh, if you spend a lot of your time pretending or defending. Like, do you have any spaces any spaces where you say, I get to be myself. My guard is not up. I'm honest. There is no pretending or defending. Do you have somebody or some bodies that can come alongside of you in safety? Do you have safe community? And then are you willing to seek it out? So if, if you're like, uh, if you're thinking to yourself right now, no, I don't. Uh, there's nobody in my life that I feel like I can just be totally wide open, honest with. Are you willing to seek it out? You're willing to seek out somebody or some bodies to walk with, to say, I, I need to find a place where I can be myself. I need to pull, I need to get pulled out of this shame spiral because I know that anyone can change, but no one can change alone. That, that is the story of Acts 9, of Saul's conversion, that anybody, even the guy uh, rounding up Christians, participating in their killing, uh, breathing murderous threats is what it says. Anybody is capable of change, but nobody goes through that process alone. Listen, everybody, everyone has stuff we need to work on. And so I don't want us to get stuck on step one. I don't want us to get stuck at acceptance. Don't, don't get stuck, but definitely don't skip over it. But last week we read from Acts 8, where, where a person who is on the margins in every way the Ethiopian unit, on the margins in every way, sexuality, nationality, culture, and race, on the margins in every way, they are accepted with no requests or requirements to change. It's full inclusion with no fine print. That's Acts 8. That's one page before Acts 9. So you get Acts 8, full inclusion, no, no fine print, and you turn the page to Acts 9, and it's a story about how we are all capable of changing. But change is predicated by belonging, not the other way around. This, this order of operations is crucial. Acceptance and belonging are the foundation of our practice. If the foundation isn't right, there is no use in doing the other work. It will not last for very long. Listen, acceptance and belonging come first. We don't change our way into belonging. We belong our way into changing. So yeah, I think you can change. I think you're capable of change. I think you might need to change. I think you have some stuff you need to work on. But none of that really matters if you don't know for sure that you belong that you are accepted, that you are loved, that your identity as beloved has nothing to do with those changes that you need to make. So don't get stuck at acceptance and never transform, but also you cannot skip over it. You can't ignore or pass over the acceptance and love that is being offered to you today. If you ignore it or if you skip it, 
those changes that you're working towards won't last very long anyway. Don't get stuck and don't skip over your unconditional love, acceptance, and belonging. Belonging is always your way forward. And so gather, this is my prayer for us today. May all of us, each of us, stop trying to do this all alone. Life is hard, grief is hard, change is hard, but none of it has to be lonely. May we find our way forward through belonging and acceptance. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.